Before we start today's show, I want to invite you to join my community of SaaS founders, agency owners, and others who are sharing tips, tricks, strategies, and tactics for creating successful cold outreach campaigns. It's a free group on Facebook called Cold Outreach Mastery, and you can get there by heading over to morgandwilliams.com slash community. And if Facebook isn't your thing, but you still want valuable cold outreach advice, head on over to morgandwilliams.com slash newsletter and put in your best email to get first in line for valuable resources that I share on how you can fill your calendar with sales meetings and your pipeline with opportunities. Now, let's start today's show. What if you knew exactly how to use cold email, LinkedIn, the phone, and other sales channels to get new meetings and customers for your B2B product or service? Morgan Williams is an enterprise sales rep that's obsessed with cold outreach. If you're sick and tired of fluff, theory, and general advice on how to sell to cold prospects from people who haven't sold anything in the past 20 years and instead want detailed, tactical, step-by-step instruction, this is the podcast for you. Each week, he'll interview salespeople, consultants, and entrepreneurs about actual outbound sales campaigns they've run with real numbers and results. Each conversation will be a deep dive into deconstructing a specific campaign's results, as well as the strategy behind it. You'll get the opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see what's actually working now in cold outreach. Welcome to Outbound Metrics. Trent Anderson is head of RevOps at Podchaser. Podchaser is the world's most comprehensive podcast database collecting, enriching, and distributing podcast insights to power discovery for listeners, podcasters, and brands. Trent, pleasure to have you on the show. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it, Morgan. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. If you have been a loyal listener, as I know you are, speaking out to all the audience members, you may remember Trent being on a podcast a couple years back, had a different name, and I want to kind of touch on what you've been up to since then and then lead into like the outbound conversation we're going to have now. I think that was back in 2019 we started talking or maybe early. Yeah, 2019. Maybe even. Yeah, right around there. And at, at that time, we were talking about how to leverage intent data to build better outbound sequences and, and, and messaging. And I think we were one of the first kind of conversations recorded around intent data. Now it's like you can't go anywhere without hearing about intent data. In any case, yeah, since the last time we talked, I went back in-house after doing three years in a SDR, an account-based sales agency, got an opportunity to work with a former customer and jumped at it. And here I am thinking, I've got this whole outbound motion figured out, been running these plays for 15 different companies for the last three years, totally dialed in into... Uh, sentence or excuse me uh, structure of cadences and messaging go in house first month rude awakening oh my goodness everything i've been doing over the last three years is not working at all in any case that's what got us here and and loving loving what we're doing now and looking forward to unpacking how this big epiphany came and i think some really actionable ways in which the audience can take this exact same play and run it until it don't run no more let's Let's click on the when you went in-house i want to kind of get into detail on what exactly you were doing type of campaigns and plays you were running yeah when i went in-house i was running uh, both top down and bottom up prospecting plays 
had been running this almost to perfection with some of our, our clients when I was working on the agency side. And when I say top down, bottom up, what that means, of course, in enterprise sales is identifying key stakeholders, people that are going to sign the check, people that are going to take the whole 6.9 people weighing in on a decision and they're going to collate all that information and then take a business case up to procurement and procurement's going to sign off on it. Well, in the space that I was running those plays in, I realized that most of those organizations, our clients were 5, 10, 15, 50 year long businesses. So the businesses had already established a good deal of brand. There was a very mature category understanding. And because of that, we were able to basically run all the personalization at at scale plays, much like you hear basically all the talking heads on LinkedIn talk about. Now, moving into a Series A venture-backed startup, top-down, bottom-ups, all all great, but it wasn't landing. And why was that? Because the uh, market is so immature when it comes to podcast analytics and podcast advertising and podcast insights. Here I am thinking, I got this, I got the tiger by the tail, we're going to go out and crush it and everyone's going to just love what we're doing. Turned out nobody knew what we were doing. A lot of the responses that I was getting from the top down, bottom up emails were like, dude, we already use Riverside, which we're recording on right now. I'm like, no, 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 wait a second. Like, we're not a hosting provider. We give you like analytics and insights to help you make better decisions about your podcast. In any case, I realized the market was way too immature to go to go to market the same way that we had. Here I am thinking I got my 45 day review coming up. I've got basically zero pipeline to show or predictable process from the SDR team that I'm helping run to show that this play is working, what am I going to do? And that's when I stumbled across the Codex series from Justin Michael and Patrick Joyce. And if you're familiar with those guys on LinkedIn, everything that they talk about is almost like cryptic and (laughs) kind of difficult to understand and unpack. And I think they do that on purpose uh, because eccentricity is like a huge driver of the value that they have. In any case, I discovered like this holy grail of prospecting plays and I started to unpack it and put it into motion. And I was shocked by some of the results that I was getting. And when you say like the market was too mature for a typical go to market, you're saying like there were there were these established brands who were servicing the market who like had everybody's mind share and your company was attempting to be a wedge, even though you, you weren't, you're not a direct competitor to them, but you are like somewhere adjacent. Do I have that correct? Yeah. So think about like podcasts, right? 72% of Americans have ever heard of podcasts. 62% of Americans listen to podcasts. Now, because of some recent controversy in, in the podcasting landscape, I think the collective consciousness rose However, when we were targeting 50, 55, 50 plus age C-suite members and VPs, they're thinking podcast and thinking like, oh God, I don't want to be associated with like whatever that Joe Rogan thing is. As a result, like we were just getting doors closed in our face without even like having a chance. We had to find a different route and what we ended up trying to do is find industries and verticals in which podcasts were more open and we're more ubiquitous with part of like the the daily process and daily motion. What we found in in doing all this market research and insight gathering and really mining our own CRM, there are two verticals in particular that were leveraging podcasts on behalf of their clients. And that's where ultimately these plays that we started to run took root. 
And that's like a huge insight that no one, like no one told me about that. Like, and as a, as a sales rep, like you, you kind of rely on your, your sales manager or your VP of sales, whatever to, to like point you in the right direction. Fortunately, like I had to find my own direction. And that's really like when we talk about immature markets versus mature markets, it's really tough to crack the the door and, and net new ones. Instead, like my process, the process I stole from Joyce was finding existing levers and pulling them as hard as you can for as long as you possibly can. Got it. Before we go into that specifically, the Codex series, can you give like a couple or three different big tenets of that series and kind of like what makes it different? Yeah. Big thing is personalization at scale doesn't exist and it isn't even that effective when you actually kind of sort of unlock it. And I was of the mindset that, hey, the more I cannot be creepy, but show my prospect that I did research them, I understand their business problems, I understand their business model, like I'm going to show off all of like the great insights that I was able to collate and glean and put it into an, in a cold email, that they would have no choice but to say, like, at least this guy understands what I'm doing. Turns out like the amount of research you have to do to get there, the amount of podcasts you have to listen to, which of course is my business now, it takes so long to get stood up that it's not even worth it. Instead, like what the Codex really provides is frameworks and structures that are kind of based on loosely neuroscience or like at least understanding of like the cerebral cortex and how our lizard brains actually think. And it just really helps, I think, simplify what can be an incredibly hard process in, in uh, sequence construction and even like the messaging within sequences. It's basically, the if I were to sum up the Codex, it would be everything you thought you knew about sales and outbound prospecting is completely wrong and made up. <laughs> and this is the better way to do it. Okay. And so you're, you're, how did you find these two verticals? You use the codex information to like look for these verticals? I looked at the codex and the codex said, find X employees of current customers. I'm like, okay, I can try that. So I go into our CRM. I start looking at the close one velocity of our biggest customers. And that's a really easy thing for me to do as RevOps. I know HubSpot inside and out. I can pull those reports pretty quickly. And what I started to notice is some of these deals were getting closed without uh, sales reps even demoing the platform, like just checking out the notes and checking out the, the stage movement. I said, huh, that's interesting. I've never seen that in my entire sales career. That was the first thing. The second thing was finding lookalike companies to the ones that we were selling into that we didn't have any success with and trying to unpack, like, was it a matter of messaging? Was it a matter of targeting the right uh, personas? Was it like just the sequence construction, whatever it was? And I started to realize like we had four or five different people at, at our organization reaching out and trying stuff, but it wasn't working. And the first time that I tried what was prescribed by Kodax, I was getting meetings booked on the first email. And I was like, okay, this is, this is the thing that we need to do now. Awesome. The ex-employee thing. I think that's in Codex 5 or 6. Don't quote me on that. But it's very simple. You go into LinkedIn Sales Navigator. You apply a couple of filters. The first one is uh, company. Or, or you go to lead list and then company. And then you put ex-employees or, or former employer, whatever the account name was. Again, you're pulling that information from your CRM. 
So in our case, it would have been, I think I'll give an example just to make it concrete for everyone. Havas, which is a big media agency. We had a, a really good relationship with them. And then I would find ex-employees of Havas. And then the next filter you put in the sales navigator is ex-employees and then not currently employed by that company, right? So otherwise you would just get people that have been promoted over time, which is fine and really good for expansion plays. But I was tasked with finding that new revenue and, and new logos, right? So ex-employees of Havis that have moved on to different agencies and different like massive agencies. That's where it started. And then of course that's going to spit back anywhere between like in some cases 5,000 results of people in sales nav to like 20,000 results. I had to get really smart about how to filter that down. The first thing that I used to filter that was people that had posted on LinkedIn within the last 30 days. There's a little flag at the bottom of the sales nav UX that shows um, like spotlights and you click that and you can find people that have posted in the next, in the last 30 days. Why that first? Well, I figured I wasn't sure if this was going to be an email only play, if I was going to have to leverage LinkedIn touches, what have you. I figured that if someone was active on LinkedIn, they probably see content that people are posting more often. They might be creating content themselves. Maybe I could leverage in, in future conversations. That ended up being really, really fruitful. And that got the list down from like whatever it was, 5,000 down to the top 300 people. Then I went back and I uh, made sure that the current customer or the current employer was not also an ex-customer. So again, I went back to my CRM. I made sure that if Havas was a customer, I made sure that Whedon Kennedy wasn't. I made sure Ogilvy wasn't. I made sure a couple of the key ones weren't. And then that whittled it down from whatever it was, 300 down to, down to 100. Some of you might say like, okay, a hundred person contact list, like, I could probably rip through that in, in two hours using you know sales loft or whatever. And the wild part of all this is like I didn't use the sales engagement tool at all. This was all like manual emails that I was just sending out to people. And uh, anyway, I would find I'd get that list whittled down to like whatever 100, pop into Zoom info, find their contact information, throw it into HubSpot so it was saved, and then literally go into my Gmail client, put their email in there as the subject line for the email, I just put the current, current customer's name. In this case, it'd be Havas. Lowercase, no capitalization, just one word, Havas. Then getting into the actual body copy, hey, first name, super casual, saw your stint at Havas. Their current customer using Podchaser to do X and Y. Had a couple ideas how, whatever the new company is, could could do something similar. When's a good time to connect? Cheers, TA. Like literally that simple. I copied and pasted it out of the codex. And I thought, this is weird because it's, it's totally funky. Like the formatting looks like an, like a text you would fire off to your friend instead of something that like some of the, the talking heads talk about like making an F-shaped email because that's the way like science tells us things are read. Instead, it was all one big chunk of, of, of paragraph, no line separations, no tabs, no bullet points, nothing. Just, it's a text, literally a text. And I thought, man, this is not going to work, but what do I have to lose? I got my 45-day review coming up, like test, test, test. I did it. I sent 10 emails that first morning. I had two appointments scheduled in the afternoon. 
And I was like, okay, all right, let's, let's boogie. Let's see how we can really turn this thing up. That's, uh, that's me open sourcing Codex. Sorry, boys, but this is, this is how, the, how it worked. What did those responses say? Like, yeah, let's meet. Or did it take more after that? Literally, yeah, let's meet. Especially because this is going back to the market maturity things that I'm talking about. People are podcast curious, but they're not either fully bought in or they're not totally understanding of what the business value of like what our solution provides. I think if I were to break down the psychology of why the, the, this email template works is because one, there's a level of familiarity, right? Like mentioning the ex or their former employer, like, okay, signal goes up. The next thing is I'm talking about podcasts. So, okay, at least like now they're associating that, but they might even be questioning like what the relevance is for them. Then I'm saying not, not the four or five things that the, the uh, company's using us for, but just the first two things. And so now they're saying, okay, I know this, I know the company because I worked there. I know kind of sort of what the solution is and I know how that company is using the solution. Then the next step is when's a good time to connect and there's so many like thoughts about CTAs and emails and like, should you ask for the meeting? Like, should you throw your calendly in there? I don't think any of that like really works or maybe even matters. But in this case, I was sharing, like I had ideas for them and here they are like curious about this new medium. They know that there's a proven use case for it. And now it's incumbent on me as the seller to help them understand how they're going to get value out of this. And it just completely shifts the dynamic between the buyer and the seller. Like I'm, I'm teaching them. It's almost, it's challenger in a way, but it's really flipping like, like parent child relationship that most buyer sellers have and having a three-year-old and a one-year-old now, like when my son asked me for the same things over and over again, it's like, come on, dude, like I'm, I'm your dad. I'm going to say no, regardless, you're not going to have ice cream before you eat your dinner. Versus if he comes to me and says, you know, dad, he tells me something really interesting or how like his friend at daycare uses this to do whatever. Like, okay, that's interesting. It makes it more relevant and, and contextual. And again, like as sellers, how many of us sound just so needy right off the bat? And anytime you can reverse roles, you got to do it. Again, like the brevity of it is huge. The contextual element of it is huge. And then the total dynamic shift, I think, is just a massive opportunity for sales reps. It stands out for sure. Parent-child, was that in the codex? I've heard another guest talk about that. Beck Holland talks about that quite a lot when she was do, running the Flip the Script at Chorus before she went solo. That's where I learned it first. And that's like, I don't think it's mentioned in, in codex necessarily. I think it's more so of like having a point of view and having an opinion and, and like making people respect that. But it's huge. How much have you run this since that first pilot? Yeah, the first week we ran it and got five meetings. The second week we ran it and got 10 meetings. The first closed one came in week three. And this was from one of mine that a different sales rep had gone after this, this account for about three months and like 18 emails never opened, never responded to whatever. I didn't even demo the platform. They just asked for pricing and I sent it and I got a signature after that. That I was like, okay, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, the fish <laughs> this are biting over here. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and um, we do this. It's it's the way that we structure like the SDR time. Like I break it down into working on new accounts, working on in progress accounts. Those should take up somewhere between like 70 to 80% of a rep's time. Working existing accounts for expansion opportunities, I put it like roughly like 5% of the time. And then in the SDRs, like the rest of the time is literally dedicated to experiments. And this was and is an experiment. As a result of that, like we, this has moved up like super high in the priority level as the way to crack into new accounts. The play's not going to work forever, right? Like it's only going to continue to scale as we bring in more customers. But the beautiful part of this is as people continue to job hop and move from the great resignation because they're unhappy, you end up identifying champions and influencers at every step of the way. So long as people keep changing jobs, it's going to continue to work. And it opens up so many like really interesting opportunities. And it's actually been a much more effective way for us to break into new verticals, too, because all it takes is one person that's been in the PR agency world forever to go in-house. And now all of a sudden we just opened up a fintech market for ourselves because the former SVP of communications at Edelman just moved into a, a Series B funded fintech company. And they're running the same play, using our product to do the same thing that they were on the agency side. So yeah, it's it's the number one driver of, of pipeline. I want to get to the lookalike companies, but I've had some, I've had some familiarity with the codex. Curious. And, and just for the listeners... The authors kind of walk through what an ideal sequence looks like. My question to you is that they have the kind of text message up front, like you mentioned, the quick any thoughts bump as email too, right? And then they do Venn diagram, right? (laughs) Have you used that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, the Venn diagram is a point of of a lot of laughter within our our hallowed sales halls because I'm not a graphic designer, but I have a Canva. I have a Canva account. Yeah, Yeah, man. I just started drawing concentric circles and saying our tool does this, which is like that, which is like this. And it does that. It's we maybe we'll send it in the show notes or something. But uh, I hacked together a Venn diagram using Canva and the when I show that to people, even after they accept the demo, I show I show them the, the Venn diagram after I do the demo. And they're like, I totally see how your product sits in the middle of all of this now. I wasn't sure when I first saw it, but it was interesting. Obviously, if you're going to do these Venn diagrams, like if you remember it from school, like what's true of one element, what's true of the other element, and like what's the overlap in between it. And like that's where ideally your product lives. Now it's, it doesn't have to just be two circles. It could be two or three or four or whatever. But the the emphasis there is showing contextually, like if you're familiar with that, you're going to be familiar with this. And I think, again, just talking about market maturity or immaturity, people like podcasts, advertising, podcast analytics, like I don't, what is that actually going to mean to me? And for us, it was putting it in the frame of reference of like, if you use Ahrefs for your SEO and use BuzzSumo for your content marketing, overlap those two things and put podcasts on top. And that's exactly what our tool does. So people said, man, now I, and that's, this is the crazy part too, Morgan, is the economic decision of the buy totally changes because they say, well, I'm paying for both of those things. Oh, great. Which one are we going to fire? We can hire, hire my solution. Instead of being like, oh, I'm going to have to go back to finance and, and get budget approved to, to pay X for your product. Like We don't have another deal cycle coming up. It just adds so much more immediacy and urgency because you can showcase how you can render other 
elements or other tools or other services redundant when you frame it up correctly with this Venn diagram, which is as simple as it gets, but unlocks so much value, I think, for customers. Did you do, were there any phone calls in your sequence? No. Believe it or not, there are, I I look at this on a monthly basis because I still don't believe it. There are four closed one deals in our HubSpot CRM with the first touch being a cold call. If we actually started making more cold calls, I'm sure we'd be selling a lot more. But the point is, like, this is such an easy way to win. And as a result of that, like the scalability is massive. The the route ruin multiply cold calling system, I think, is brilliant and genius. And if you're familiar with like the the movement towards the permission based opens and all that, this basically says, no, don't don't do any of that. You got to route ruin and, and, and multiply. I, I don't want to speak too much to that because I don't do it. I can talk a lot about the, the cadences, but I will say the email cadences, you, you nailed it. Like the first one's a text almost looking thing. The second one's a bump. The third one's this Venn diagram. That's only one stage of the sequence. The codex would say that you should have another three-step that lives within that, that larger sequence. And then if that one concludes, then there should be another three-step. We don't even use the second group because we get responses within the first or second email and and on the very small occasion, the third email. And if they don't respond to that by then, it ends up usually not being a fit anyway. Like most of this is being driven by a three email sequence. And these are like clustered. Day one, two, clusters, three, yeah. and then break, and then another triple, boom, boom, boom. Right. Correct. Correct. And in, in ours, so I do the the first touch and then the second touch comes like within 24 hours of the first touch. And then we usually wait two days for the third touch. If an email goes out on Monday morning, there's going to be a bump that happens. Or if an email goes out Monday afternoon, there's going to be a bump that happens Tuesday morning. Usually how I like to set it up. Very tight turnaround window. And then the third email doesn't end up going out until Wednesday. And usually that's enough to get, it's funny, like when you see all the open metrics start to pop up and all the notifications, it's like, why is this person opening it up 27 times? Well, it's because they're forwarding it to everybody within their department or whatever. Yeah, that's usually what we do is a very finite three cluster, three email cluster. And that's how we're winning. Is there anything you've learned after getting these people on the phone, having sales conversations, closing deals with them? That's similar that they share in common? Yeah, they they don't know what the value of what we do is. So they're really looking for a leader in the dance to use to borrow that silly analogy. And I think again, like the dynamic between me and the and the buyer is so different because I can show them exactly how their peers in their former organization are winning using my tool. And as a result of that, they go. They actually get excited when they leave the demo, and they go back to their boss. They go back to their committee, their whatever, and they say, "We gotta, we gotta move on this because Havas is doing this. If Havas is doing this, that means like there's a big demand from their customers, right?" And it just to- totally changes the dynamic. As a result of that, like our closed one velocity is less than 28 days, and our ACV is not super high, which probably helps that too, but. 28 days in SaaS is pretty good for a four four plus figure. I want to flip it. Let's say like you're, let's say if you're working at like AWS, has all the brand recognition in the world, right? Monster. Would you suggest like in that instance, some 
sure like top down bottom up would be easier just because of that brand, right? But yeah. the way I'm thinking with your strategy is find a customer who's really doing well with your product and then use that angle to go after similar folks in that vertical. Is that kind of the Definitely. Definitely. I mean, it plays into social proof, right? Like people want to know what other people are doing to win in the space. Because at the end of the day, like everyone wants to go with a winner. They don't want to, they don't want to go with a loser. Right. And usually status quo is undefeated. If it's something new or novel and they know that someone similar is winning with it, they're much more open to exploration. Doesn't mean they're going to close. Doesn't mean they're going to win, but they're open and as a seller, that's all you need, right? I mean, we all see the statistics, only 3% of buyers or whatever are in our buy now mode. Well, how do you how do you bump that urgency up? It's very difficult to do it unless you give people a reason to. And I think, again, like leaning into some of the, the social psychology of this is where more opportunity exists for everyone. For sure. Moving into lookalike companies. Tell me about this yeah. play. How does that work? Yeah. What's true of this is like almost like you got to Venn diagram your customer base. And this is what's so brilliant about that play. So like for, for us, what's true of a, of an agency of a media buying agency is there's a client that's involved. The client is either driving decisions that the agency should be making or someone else is very seldom are there like agency led decisions. I looked at that model and then I said, where else is this actually happening? And in our case, it was in, in book publishers. And why is that? Book publishers represent the authors that are writing the books and the book publisher make, stands to make more money if the launch of the book is successful. Like very, very simple. Now, the author usually has a little bit more finger on the pulse of the audience that they're writing for because that's they know them they've done the research they they get it when you see a lot of these authors like one of the big breakouts was like david goggins can't hurt me when he wrote that with scribe media well how was david goggins wit winning he wasn't a dude that was on talk shows and talk radio he was his own independent like media arm when he partnered with scribe to write his write his book and it went massively viral. Well, where was he, where was he doing that? He was doing it on Rogan. He was doing it on Lex Friedman. He was doing it on all of like the major independent podcasts. I actually credit Goggins for a lot of things in my life, but for that in particular, like he kind of laid the, the groundwork for, for us to say independent authors are winning by tapping into emergent channels. And that started to really change the, the mindset of, around what my product did for established or legacy players in the space too. When I talk about lookalike audiences, it's how do how do your customers make decisions? Is it driven by their customers? Is it driven by external forces, whatever? And then try to find other places or other companies that have those same constraints under their decision-making capacity. Let's give an example from like a pod chaser example, how you did that for context. Yeah. That, that's exact. That's the Goggins example, right? We were working with media agencies. Media agencies had clients. Who else has clients? Well, I guess book publishers do. Okay, what's true of book publishers? They're kind of taking demands from some of the authors in order to, to sell more books. So that was like the, the line that we drew between those two. Now, we're doing that into additional verticals as well. 
An interesting one is the NFT space. It's an asset. The only thing is there's no intermediary. There's no, and this is why we've, we haven't totally cracked uh, the code yet. There's no intermediary that's standing between the, the consumer and the producer of the asset. That's why crypto is awesome, right? Because you don't need a, a book publisher to go out and like hawk your, your NFT. That'd, that'd be an example of us kind of failing in that regard. I'm saying what's true of, of authors, they produce something creative and tangible. Cool. What's true of NFT projects, they're creating something, I guess, non-tangible, but you know what I mean. It's an asset. But the difference that I didn't look at was the business models totally uh, inverted, right? No one, no one of these NFT projects need to be features on, featured on CNBC <laughs> to get their NFT project off the ground. So yeah, that's uh, about as real as you can get on, on, on the example side. Awesome. Any other, any other plays you guys running? We're going to keep running this one until it stops working. And I think, again, like the beauty of it still is with some of these really large organizations that we're going after is we might have like 10 seats out of 10,000 employees. You start to look at different divisions. You start to look at different imprints. You start to look at different geo, geos as well. And that's one thing that we've been doing too. So like, okay, great. We have 10 users and they're all based in the New York office, but I can tell in Sales Navigator that they have 50 people based in San Jose. And I can see that they have 250 people based in Chicago. Is there, is there a reason why we don't have like total geo dominance over this? I mean, the answer is usually no, other than once the deal was sold, nobody went back to it. Again, instead of saying like working with your ex-employer, you're saying working with your Chicago office or working with your New York office. And it scales infinitely if you're targeting large organizations, obviously. But I'm really excited about that play too, because that way we can maintain the captured demand that we have, and then also go out and get net new logos while we're like simultaneously pulling these growth levers. Anything in it, this whole sequence, it sounds like you were surprised the whole way when you started and just all these insights came in. Was there anything else that surprised you in doing this or anything you've experimented on? I used to look a lot into deliverability metrics when I was running the, the outbound sales agency because you only had a, a finite amount of accounts to go after. And most of it was trying to build out whatever 10 step cadences. And if you had a high bounce rate for one of the accounts, then like you're basically screwed. I've not looked at open metrics, bounce rates, anything like that since in the, like the few months that we've been running these plays at, at Podchaser because People are responding on the first email being sent. Like that was shocking to me. Like it oftentimes we used to get responses on like step six, step seven. But now like and then you start to figure out like why is it taking so long to get people to say yes? Is it a technical issue? Then you spend half your day looking in your DMARC, SPF, and DKIM settings that you don't really know how to fix anyway, but you <laughs> YouTube it. But if you're actually like going out and, and getting meetings and selling deals, like you're not worried about that kind of stuff. So that was really surprising, like how much time I used to spend on like the, the, the sales tech side and how much time I was actually wasting, truly, instead of just trying to find a better way to do it. Yeah, for sure. Any other tips you want to give to the audience? I know there's a ton that you've given away here, but... Follow Patrick Joyce on LinkedIn. Patrick is an ex-math teacher turned 
outbound sales guy and his ability to synthesize really complex things into very simple takeaways is why I've always gravitated towards him. Once upon a time when I was running a podcast, I had him on and I was just like blown away by how he was able to take at the time account-based sales and synthesize it down into just it's it's getting conversation started with the right people at the companies that are going to buy from you. It's like, oh, wow, I don't have to worry about air cover and all this kind of stuff. Patrick continues to do that. I know he's doing some consulting work as well, but it's Patrick Joyce, and he's a must-follow on LinkedIn. Awesome. All right, podchaserpro.com. Trent, it's a pleasure having you on. Morgan, you're the best. Thanks, man. Awesome. You have a good one. Cheers, man. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you.